Changed by Love is the teaching ministry of Pastor Jim Kevney of Calvary Chapel, Morris Hills in Morris County, New Jersey. Pastor Jim's desire is to teach the Word of God with passion and simplicity, as well as a direct application to our daily lives. One of the great challenges you'll face in your life is that of loyalty. Often, it is much easier to go with the flow or follow the crowd than to remain loyal to the Lord. This is especially true when the situation looks good on the surface. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham just won a big battle and a king he helped comes to see him and makes what seems to be a good deal. At face value, it looks innocent. But there is another king there who represents loyalty to God. Abraham's situation is beneficial for learning godly decision-making. Let's join Pastor Jim in part one of his message, Which King Will You Follow? Well, the election is almost here. And we are being bombarded to choose a side. To, if you will, proclaim your loyalty. Now, we might hope that it ends with the election, but for a follower of Jesus, and if you're here or you're watching and you're not a follower of Jesus, glad that you're with us. You are most welcome indeed. But for a follower of Jesus, our loyalty to Jesus is constantly being challenged. And here we are in Genesis chapter 14 for easy math. Let's just call it 4,000 years ago. And last week we saw Abram, or who became Abraham, defeated four powerful evil kings, rescued his nephew Lot and five other kings and, and all their families. And now he's faced with a choice, a bigger choice than do I go rescue them. You see, it's often the case in life after a great victory, after some sort of success that you have, after a great blessing of God, or even after a tremendous disappointment, it is often followed by an important choice that you and I have to make. And so the title of our message today is, Which King Will You Follow? You're going to have to decide which one you're going to follow. There's always two kings. You could say three if you want to call yourself the third one, vying for your attention. So we left off with verse 16. After Abram had won the battle, it said this, Genesis 14:16. So he brought back all the goods, and he also brought back his brother Lot. Again, brother being from the same family. It was his brother's son. And his goods, as well as the women and the people. So it's a great time. We won. We won. We went out against the odds. Four superpower kings picking on five little kings that they basically were making them pay taxes and, and hush money and protection money and all that kind of stuff, kind of mafia stuff. And Abram goes out against the odds and the power of God, and he wins the battles. But no sooner are they back, and then two very different kings come out to speak with Abram. And he is faced with a choice. Look at verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, that's near Jerusalem, after his return from the defeat of Ketalomer and the kings who were with him. So the, the king of Sodom was one of the ones that was kidnapped, and all his people were kidnapped, and all his goods were kidnapped, and Lot was kidnapped with him. And so he comes out to meet Abram after this great victory. So who is the king of Sodom? Who is this guy who, who comes out to meet 
Abram to uh, presumably congratulate him. Well, in chapter 13, we saw that Lot chose to live near Sodom, and chapter 13, verse 13 said this, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So, He's the king of the people that are exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So do we think he's a good guy? Probably not. Probably not a good guy. Then in chapter 14, where we are now, verse 12, it said they, that would be the the four kings, the powerful kings, also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. So Lot went from living outside of Sodom and to living in Sodom. So that's what motivated Abram to go after them because it was Lot he really went after and his people. So who is the king of Sodom? He's Lot's king. That's who he is. And he's the king of a city that is exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. In verse 2, we learned last week that his name was Bera. Verse 10, we learned that he may have fallen into an asphalt pit as he was running away. Now, I don't know, maybe, but did you think he got cleaned up for this meeting or think he came as is? I always uh, like to picture the the little Hebrew kids going to bed and going, Mommy and Daddy, tell us the story of of the king who fell into the tar pits and then went to meet Father Abraham. So we'll just picture him as a dirty king. Now, it might appear that he's coming out of the valley near Jerusalem, to the valley near Jerusalem, to thank Abraham, but he's not. He's really coming out to tempt him. So what happens to Abraham? He finds himself moving from one battle to another. You ever feel like life is like that? It's like one battle's over, and and maybe you have a victory. And before you even had a chance to thank God for the victory... There's already another one. You know, you, you get off the phone with someone. It's one of these things about having these blasted cell phones that just gives you no time to actually rest at all. You get off the phone with someone and you're like, oh, yes, Lord, thank you so much. And then there's a text or an email or a post or something like that. And you're like, oh, no, Some, something else. So he's barely had time to move from one battle and another one comes along. And he moves from success And he's going to move to temptation and compromise. Now, evil is very clever. How many of you know that evil never takes a vacation? Of course you do. This is Calvary Chapel. We all know this. And and so he's going to receive from the king of Sodom what seems to be like a very reasonable business offer and an incredible political offer, but Only through the eyes of faith will Abram be able to see the compromise. You see, what's at stake for Abram is the line of the Messiah. That's big stuff, wouldn't you say? But what's at stake for us? Well, at stake for us is faith or failure. And, And sometimes our failure is really tough to bounce back from, isn't it? Faith, we we seem to forget quickly. But failure seems to stick with us forever. It is is spiritual life or spiritual death that's at stake for us. And then we come to verse 18, and one of the most mysterious characters in all of the Bible appears. 
He is only spoken of in the Old Testament here and in Psalm 110. Yet the New Testament book of Hebrews, which we'll talk about in a little bit, tells us how important he is. Look at verse 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem, think of Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now, I know a lot of people think, oh, boy, he brought out communion. I'm not so sure that's what that means. Uh, Bread, a staple of life. Wine, often associated with joy. He was the priest of God most high. So he's what? He's a true believer. He's a true believer. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of, second time, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And, verse 20, blessed be God most high, third time he says that, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe or a tenth of all. You say, who's he? Well, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 6 tells us it's Abram. Abraham, who gives a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek, this king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So, in the midst of the moral cesspool, the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites live, I know up in our part of the world, we, some of you might call it the moral septic tank, but in the midst of the moral cesspool, a new king appears. Hebrews 7.2 tells us that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and he is the king of a city, Salem, whose name means peace. What a contrast. The king of righteousness, the king of the city of peace, is now standing there with Abram, and also there's the king of Sodom, who a city that is if you will, use as the gold standard for sin and abomination. When you talk about a sin, sinful city, you know, people compare certain sinful cities in the United States to Sodom. Now, Melchizedek, very interesting, he, he appears out of nowhere. We're not told anything about him. No family history. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Read the book of Genesis, and family histories are everywhere. Read the Bible, Old Testament, families' histories everywhere. He's a mysterious figure. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that he symbolizes the eternal priesthood. Now, Melchizedek did not participate, as far as we know, in this battle against all odds that Abraham went up against the four superpower kings, unless, of course, it's possible that he participated in fervent prayer. Maybe he heard about it. I have no idea. And he prayed for Abram in this battle. He brought out bread and wine, which would be staples and elements of life, presumably to celebrate the victory to bless Abraham, and to praise God for the victory. You see, Melchizedek has great theology. He's clear. He sees the Most High God as the Creator. He sees the Most High God as the Deliverer and the Savior. He sees the Most High God as the Sovereign over all. Now, let's fast forward a thousand years. 
King David writing, writes these words in Psalm 110.1. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. God talking to God. Now that must have been such an unusual type of a thing for people to read. What in the world is he talking about? Now let's fast forward another thousand years to Jesus. Jesus is engaging a conversation in Matthew 22 uh, with the religious leaders, and he says, well, whose son is the Christ? And they answer, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus says this, Matthew 22, 45 and 46, he says, if David then calls him Lord, what is he doing? He's quoting Psalm 110.1. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Then we're told, and, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day or on did anyone dare question him anymore. But if we were studying Psalm 110 after verse 1 saying, my Lord said, the Lord said to my Lord, King David still writing, the Lord speaking to the Lord, speaking to the Christ, the Messiah. Listen to what David says or what David writes he got from the Lord in verse 4. Again, remember, this is a thousand years after Melchizedek, and it's a thousand years before Jesus. It's right in the middle. He writes this, Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. And then he quotes the Lord. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord says to the Lord, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What is God having David do? He is pointing to one greater than Melchizedek who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and the religious leaders, they, Jesus once again talked them into a corner. They fully well knew he's thinking he's the Lord talking to the Lord. And they're like, every time we answer this guy, we get stumped, so we're going we're gonna to back off. You see, this explains why Abraham, the great man of God, uh, paid a tithe or 10% of his money, of his resources, to Melchizedek. What, what is that? It is the lesser gives the tithe to the greater. The lesser makes an offering to the greater. You see, friends, that's what we are doing when we give money to the Lord's work. The lesser, us, is giving to the greater God. The people who can be sometimes righteous and other times unrighteous are giving to who? The king of righteousness. So I know sometimes people will say to me, and before I was even a pastor, would say, does your church require you to give money to it? And I would always go, I really don't give money to the church. I give money to the Lord's work that takes place through the church. So I don't really, I don't, I don't think of it as giving to the church. I mean, it is good to, to give to the place where you receive spiritual care and, you know, you 
need certain things and, and they're available to you. And, but ultimately, we give it unto the Lord, the lesser giving to the greater. You know, like Jesus, who would come 2,000 years later after Melchizedek in the midst of the unrighteous kings of the world, in Melchizedek there was a king who stood for righteousness. Now, he was not part of the alliance of kings in Canaan. Remember the alliance of the five wicked kings, if you will, that got captured by the four big shots. And so we might say that Melchizedek, in the midst of, again, the the moral cesspool of, of Canaan, he stood out as heaven's man for the time. Let me ask you a question that is as challenging to me as it is I want it to be to you. Do you want to be in in the area in which God has given you, do you want to be the man or woman for the time? Do Do you want to be that person? It's not easy. And I don't pretend that it's easy. But I do know in the few tastes of it I've had in my life, that it is wholly worth it. It is worth it to be that person. Uh, Interesting when Melchizedek, and he's a king, Abram is sort of like a king. Melchizedek is is a priest, and Abram is sort of like a priest. He builds altars and makes sacrifices. But notice in Melchizedek, there is not a hint of jealousy. Not a hint of it. He he comes out and he's got the the celebration food with him. And bread, again, meaning life in the Old Testament. Joy, uh, wine is symbolic of joy. And he's happy for him. And he's happy for for the victory for the kingdom of God. Do you know that... Being happy for others when God uses them in the kingdom is a sign of a true man or woman of God. Sometimes people get very jealous when other people are used by God. That is not good. That is not good. If that's you, listen, don't be jealous. Get out there, pick up your baseball bat and get up, step into the box and take a swing. I can remember times when I would play baseball in high school and, and we'd go up against like the best pitcher in the county or something like that and I would just be watching him throw fastballs by me. And I'd get in the car and I'd say to my dad and be like, oh, oh my gosh. And he'd say, listen, son, if you never step in the batter's box, you don't stand any chance of hitting the ball. And so he, he was happy for him. He didn't... He didn't care that other people might be saying, hey, maybe this Abraham is is now the guy. You know, some people have to have all the limelight on them. Not good. Sometimes people say to me around here, they go, you know, I noticed that you put this person in charge of that, or you put this person in that, or you're letting them do this, or you're letting them lead a group, or or something like that, or you're letting them run with this, and, you know, that's... You know, you might be taking a chance with that one. Why would you do that? And I always say, because I love watching God use unlikely people. <laughs> it just jacks my faith, man. <laughs> and they're like, what if they mess up? I go, well, then they're just like the rest of us. <laughs> we'll figure it out. He was happy to see Abram used by God to see people live 
so they could hear about this great God and their lives and their eternal destiny could be changed. Just imagine all the people that Abram saved and his army saved. Do you think he deserved to listen to them, to Abram, about his God? The New Testament is full of commands that we are not to be a jealous people. We are not to envy one another. Rather, we are to support one another in the work of the gospel. That's, again, a plug for community groups because your group should be doing that. And if you're not, you should be. And you don't have to be the leader to do that. So someone says in their group, hey, you know, I, I tried to share the gospel with my coworker today and it didn't go so well. Don't wait for the leader to say it. You say it. Hey, man, thanks for getting up and taking a swing. That's all God asks you to do. His word will not return void. You don't need to be the leader to be an encourager. You don't, you don't need to be the leader to be the leader. <laughs> You don't need to be the leader to be a leader in any walk of life. Because in most of the environments in which you run, you are now the resident biblical theologian. You are now the pastor of your work area, of your home, of your bus stop, of your mom's group. It's you. And don't be afraid to get up and take a swing. Notice it was adversity that brought these two men together. I'm sure there was a sense, I don't know if they knew each other or not, but I'm sure there was a sense of loneliness for both of them. It can be very lonely being the only Christian in your family. It can be very lonely being the only Christian in your workplace. It can be very, very lonely when you feel like you're at this alone. I'm sorry. This really makes me miss Pastor Rocco. Many of you didn't know how sick he was. He was a very, very sick man. And then when I got sick, with somebody else who had a chronic illness that I related to in some fashion, but never did so much as when I got one. He became more than a brother to me. And three or four nights a week, we would sit up in my office for an hour after everybody else left. Two men, sick, and desiring passionately to serve the Lord and to encourage one another to do it. Many a times I have said to the Lord, why him? Why him? See, he didn't mind that I was the voice of Calvary Chapel, if you will. He, he did a lot with our radio show, and he did our radio station, and he would always come up to my office and he would say this, what can I take off your plate? What can I do to make your life easier so you can focus on where God wants to take us? Well, now here comes the temptation. I did better with that than I thought I would. 
Now here comes the temptation, verse 21. Now the king of Sodom, again, remember evil doesn't take a day off, said to Abram, hey, pass the wine, we can party and celebrate. No, he doesn't. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Another version says, give me the people and keep the possessions that we stole. We stole, when you would, when you would conquer kings, you would take their stuff. Why? To weaken them. You keep the stuff for yourself. Now, realistically speaking, Abram could have kept everything, but you have to realize what a huge political mess that would be. Remember we said before, uh, last week, that what would happen was you would conquer a group of people, then you would take their stuff and you would have tribute, you have them pay taxes, and that would only go on for so long and then there would be a rebellion. Abram is not there to take these people by force, he's there to take them by grace. He's there not to take the possession of the land by force. He's there to get it by by gift from God. Changed by Love with Pastor Jim Kevney of Calvary Chapel, Morris Hills in Morris County, New Jersey. Changed by Love brings you the great hope of the gospel to equip you to reach others with this transforming message. In a world filled with fear and mistrust, Pastor Jim provides the path to freedom in a clear and transparent style. Changed by Love needs your help to reach thousands, including your friends and neighbors. Find out the ways you can team financially with Changed by Love by visiting our website at changedbyloveradio.org or call 862-217-9686. Pastor Jim would love to hear your story and how Changed by Love has impacted your life or someone you know. Your encouragement goes a long way. Thank you for spending time with Pastor Jim Kevney and Changed by Love.